Oh, God, are you really all of that and more? All of that? What Julie just sang? The lover of our souls? What does that mean? On the cusp of this new year, what does that mean for us? Make it clear. Today, right now, in your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I was reading last week the Los Angeles Times. We're out in L.A. for a family reunion with my mother, siblings, and nephews and nieces. And I get to the op-ed page, L.A. Times, okay? So this is last week. And a headline catches my eye, not a happy new year. I'm saying, I'm saying what's up with that? So who wrote this? Michael Metzler is a father, husband, teacher, and author living in upstate New York. So why is a guy living in New York writing for the L.A. Times? Then I found out. I want to read it to you. My daughter Hannah died last year. A tumor slowly ate away at her 17-year-old brain, causing her to lose motor function, speech, life. It was March 2014. All the treatments and clinical trials and prayers couldn't stop it, and I still don't have the words to talk about it. I'm supposed to be somewhat dexterous with language. I teach high school English, and I even wrote a book recently. I don't have, often have a hard time coming up with something to say or a way to say it. When it comes to talking about Hannah's death, however, things have been different. As conversations with new acquaintances tilt toward family, and there's no avoiding the matter, I give her death a quick and cursory mention. I've adopted this technique partly out of empathy for the poor person who couldn't possibly have seen this turn in the conversation coming, and partly out of self-preservation so I can navigate it quickly, compartmentalize my emotions, and then get back to getting through the day. But embedded deep within this terse treatment of my profound pain is a subtle language mechanism, a secret code I've clung to as a means of coping. When I say, as I did earlier, my daughter Hannah died last year, I know that those two essential words, last year, keep me in the immediate wake of it all and somehow keep my daughter here and close and present. In 2014, it was raw and there was no doubt we were in the midst of our tragedy. She had just died throughout 2015, saying last year has certainly put the event in the past linguistically, but anyone truly listening can sense that it is ever-present. It seems like yesterday, and I and my family continue to wear our grief like a threadbare garment. With 2016 approaching, though, just what exactly am I supposed to say? What language am I supposed to use come Friday? Because this came out the day before New Year's Eve, all right? So come Friday, that would be New Year's Day. Come Friday, I will no longer be able to refer to last year when discussing Hannah's death. I'll need to put a date on it, a year on it, making it somehow historical and creating distance. My daughter's death will become some static event in time and because time passes and the years turn, we will be expected to move on. Never before has New Year's Eve, with its countdown to midnight, its, its simple turn of a calendar page, its song of old acquaintance being forgot, brought on such dread and utter confusion about moving forward. There is no chance that I'll forget my daughter, of course, but the calendar can't possibly jibe with my emotions. The years are moving too fast for me now. While memories of Hannah remain like the comfort of lingering smoke from a favorite candle, 
The year's end will be coaxing us to throw open the windows and clear the air for rebirth and renewal. But I don't want to clear the air. I want to remember. I want to slow it all down and just sit for a while, not moving until I'm ready, not talking about it until I can get the words right. Instead of a new year with new numbers, I need a new language that allows me to linger and wait and hold on. Wow. Only a parent who has lost a child, and there are a number of you here, only a parent who has lost a child can know the crystal pain that clings like icicles to this father's perpetual grief. Tomorrow afternoon, four o'clock, Howard Performing Arts Center. This campus says goodbye to a young co-ed, Whitney Watson. Her folks are in our midst these hours before tomorrow. You know, I, I read this, and I must tell you, I, I just bow before the magnitude of this father's grief, the pain, the, the love, the loss. You can say to me, hey, hey, Dwight, God is love, and, you know, I think I get it. You can say to me, you know, the Bible says, for God so loved the world, and I, I think I can grasp it. But when a father sobs out his love from such brokenness like this, yo, somehow we are faintly able to grasp the stark truth about God's love. And we dare to wonder, is it possible that God loves us even more than this? Open your Bible with me to Romans chapter 5. It's not a strange passage. You may have read it before. Romans chapter 5, our, our passage for this homily. Romans chapter 5. I'll be in the New International Version. You didn't bring a Bible. You've got to see this. Don't read it on the screen. Pull the Pew Bible out in front of you. It'll be, it'll be page 760 in the Pew Bible. Romans chapter 5. I want to read verse 8. But God, you see that? But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to go back to verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now comes verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But here comes verse 8 again. God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? What you and I have just read, iterated three times, is the profound timeline of the gospel. Did you catch it? We just read it. I want you to grab your study guide. I want you to get this. This is a huge point, absolutely essential to catch. 
The timeline of the gospel. Your study guide, by the way, is tucked in your New Year bulletin. Don't have one? We've got some ushers here. Thank you, ushers. If you would bring some study guides up and down these rows, just hold your hand up and an usher will come your way. I suppose we ought to throw the title slide up one more time, put it on the screen. There it is. Those of you watching on a television or a laptop or wherever, uh, if it's not live streaming, our website is www.pmchurch.tv. You're looking for our little series that takes us into the first Sabbath of this new season, Charmed into Righteousness. Last Sabbath, the only Savior. Today, the truest friend. And you look, those of you live streaming have written in and saying, hey, where do we find the study guide? Just go down, go down beneath the image that's on your screen right now, and you'll see the study guide is uh, right there. All right, let's go. Three iterations of this profound timeline. Let's jot it down. Verse 6, while we were still powerless, right in the word powerless. We read that in verse 6. Two verses later, verse 8, while we were still sinners, Paul writes. And then two verses later, verse 10, while we were still enemies. Three times, three iterations of the single timeline with one truth. Jot it down. God loved us before. That's a huge point. Before we were lovable. While we were still a rotten, unlovely mess, He loved us. I'm telling you what, this is a big deal when you consider our social media postings these days. Come on, everybody's on social media now. They just released January 1, by the way, the top 10 social media sites. And guess who's number one? Of course, 1.1 billion human beings, Facebook. And underneath it, Twitter, about 250 million, and then on down. So everybody's into social media now. But they're doing research now on our postings. And guess what they're finding out? As I wrote in today's blog, don't read it now. They're finding out that, in fact, we act like we're curators in a museum. You know what a curator, do- a curator does? <laughs> what he does is he says, I'm, she says, I'm going to put the, the, the pizzazz out front. I'll hide the ugly stuff in the back. Curators arrange it to put the best up front. We are curating our own self-images. That's what they're finding out. This is fascinating. It's in your study guide, the quote. Put it on the screen for you. Walt Mueller describes those of us who are third millennials, this identity formation that, we're, that we all practice. These are his words on the screen. For digital natives living out their lives in an online world, the, the identity options from which to choose are virtually limitless. Kids, and I add the words and adults, are able to perform through a growing multitude of social media sites by choosing the words they post, might be true, might be false, by posing and photoshopping themselves into images that don't come close to who they really are. As media critic Quentin Schultz has observed, the digital world suffocates virtue by allowing us unbridled freedom to be all things to all people, to give ourselves over to the highest bidder or to the most persuasive master, end quote. Hey, guys, why do we do it? Young or aged, why do we do it? You know why? Because we're convinced that little old me, you kidding, weird as I am, the, the stuff I don't do, the cool I am not, Nobody would be attracted to me. But if I re-Photoshop myself, now you'll want to be a friend. Now you'll follow. Yeah, that's the point. A friend of me, a friend of mine gave me Michael Horton's newest book. Fascinating title, by the way. I'm working my way through it. Ordinary, Sustainable Faith in a Radical, Restless World. You have the quote as well. He's quoting a psychiatrist now, okay? So some bright minds are looking at these postings. A psychiatrist. Put the words on the screen. The name of the psychiatrist, Keith Abloh. He warns, based on recent studies, 
He warns of, quote, now quoting the psychiatrist, the toxic psychological impact of media and technology on children, adolescents, and young adults, and not so young adults, I add, particularly as it regards turning them into faux or fake celebrities, the equivalent of lead actors in their own fictionalized life stories. On Facebook, young and not so young people can fool themselves into thinking they have hundreds or thousands of friends. They can delete unflattering comments. They can block any Anyone who disagrees with them or pokes holes in their inflated self-esteem. Using Twitter, young and not-so-young people can pretend they are worth following as though they have real-life fans when all that is really happening is the mutual fanning of false love and false fame. Ouch! Why are you all nodding your heads? Because it's true. Which makes Romans 5's timeline even more stunning. Because before we could, before we had the time to Photoshop ourselves to make ourselves attracted to God, while we were still a rotten, unlovely mess, God saw us and He said, You, I love. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, while we were still powerless, I loved you. And I said, I want that girl, I want that boy for my friend. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us. In this, while we were still sinners, Christ came down and died for us. And by the way, did you catch that? It's not just Jesus who loves us. Some of us think it's Jesus who loves us and the Father's ticked off at us. It's not true. God Himself has demonstrated His love for the likes of you and me. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. By the way, in contradistinction to when we became good, then Christ died for us. Wrong. The before. The before is absolutely critical. In fact, jot it down. The Father loved us and Christ died for us before. Before we could spiritually Photoshop ourselves into some sort of attractive state. Are you kidding? God, God exclaims to Israel, are you kidding? You think I chose you because you're attractive? Ah. Ezekiel chapter 16, I'm not going to read it here. I gave you the reference of the verses there. It's, it's just very stunning. You keep your finger here in Romans 5. I'll just pick up a line because I, I haven't marked it so I can get to it quick. God says, hey, 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 I want to tell you something. Israel, yo, you people who think you're the chosen ones, listen up. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Okay, so there's a little baby with an umbilical cord dragging around. That was you. Your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. So when the boy Jesus is born, like all good Hebrew mothers, washed with salt, clean, and then wrapped with swaddling cloths. It's not clothes, it's cloths. That was the way Jesus came. No one looked at you, God said. He's talking to his chosen ones. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field. For on the day you were born, you were despised. Nobody wanted you. Do you understand that? Nobody. And then I passed by, and oh, this is yuck. Then I passed by, and I saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you, little girl, as you, little boy, lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. In the next verse, he says, and I took a corner of my garment, and I put that corner of my garment over you, and that's a covenant. You and I are going to be married one day. Grow up, girl. Grow up, boy. We're going to be married, you and me. And you began to grow. Puberty set in, and that's the actual language in the NIV. Puberty set in. 
You became rather attractive. And then what did you do? (laughs) But you trusted in your beauty, verse 15, and you used your fame to become a prostitute. And in all your detestable practices, verse 22, and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth. You didn't remember what you were before you were photoshopped when you were naked and bare and kicking about in your blood. Not a very pretty picture of the God who says, when you were that, I loved you. Boy, that word before is absolutely a big deal. The timeline of the gospel. Before, before you became who you are. When you were still rotten, unlovely, and a mess, I loved you. In fact, Paul makes the same point in Romans. Your finger's already there in Romans 5. But just turn a few pages back to, uh, to uh, Romans 3. And I'll just read a few lines here. Paul says, I'm going to get away the, get all the blood and mucus out of the story and the umbilical cord that's not cut. I'll just leave all that out. I'll just tell you the truth. Morally, here's your picture. Verse 10, Romans 3, 10, as it is written. These are all quotations from the Old Testament. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Nobody on this planet. All, verse 12, have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Your throats are open graves. Your tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on your lips. Your mouths are full of cursing and bitterness and yada, yada, yada. That's you. So the timeline is crucial for us to get. Three iterations to drive home the profound truth that God loved us and died for us while we were still a rotten, unlovely mess. God demonstrates His own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, when it comes to advertising, don't you just love all these little pop-up ads in the Internet and uh, (laughs) billboards? When it comes to advertising, marketing, Madison Avenue, there's a little adage we've all learned as human beings, and you know it as well. If it seems too good to be true, it, how's it go? Usually is too good to be true. But Desmond Ford comes along in his short little commentary on Romans entitled Right with God Right Now, says that's not the way it is with the gospel. That may be Madison Avenue and marketing, but the gospel. Here are Ford's words on the screen for you. With the gospel, it's the opposite as Madison Avenue. It must be true, the gospel, because it's so good. In fact, and I'd never seen this before, the word God is just a contraction of the word good. So take the word good, drop an O out of it, boom, you got God. But guess what? It works the same way with the devil. The word devil is just an expansion of the word evil. So you got evil, then you put a D in front of it, and you got devil. Those are your choices. No man can serve two. You can't. There's no third. It's just these, this new year. Those are your choices. Before it goes on, God is good, gooder. I like that. Gooder than we could ever think, just as we are worser than we ever thought. You have to keep the two at equipoise. God, he writes, is better than we ever considered. We are worse than we ever suspected. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we're still sinners. Wow. But lest we conclude that this divine love is some sort of, you know, sterile love. Hey, listen, guys. Okay, look, 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 look. God says, look, I I am love. That's true. I am love. But I'm telling you what, this is not an easy thing for me to love you. Take a look at yourself, please. I will go ahead. No, no, don't worry. I will go ahead because I have to because I'm love. I'm not really into this. I don't have my heart in it. Are you kidding? 
Do you think he's that way? Exact opposite, according to Scripture. John Peckham teaches philosophy and theology over at the Theological Seminary. His brand new book just came out, The Love of God, a Canonical Model. Quoted from it last week. Number one reader's choice for the IVP Academic Press. Number one choice of readers. John Peckham says, hey, guys, you ought to see what the Scripture says of God's love. I'll put it on the screen. This is beautiful. Scripture presents God as, if, as, as affectionate. You ever think of God as affectionate? As affectionate and loving, devotedly interested and intimately concerned about humans, affected by the world in feeling joy and delight and goodness, yet feeling sorrow, passion, and intense anger, alongside feeling profound compassion and the desire to redeem humans. Now, it's true. While none can overpower God, He is affected by worldly events. Crises, tragedies, he's affected by it because he has willingly opened himself up to reciprocal love relationship with creatures. You know what reciprocal means, don't you? One-on-one, we, we give, we each give. All right, one more line. God enjoys and is deeply affected by reciprocal, though asymmetrical. That means it's huge love over here on God's part, tiny little love on my part. This is not even Stephen. It's really asymmetrical. But God is affected by reciprocal relationship with humans. End point. Wow. Case in point, by the way, what we just read, verse 10, here in Romans chapter 5. Let me read it to you in the today's English version or the Good, good News translation. Put it on the screen for you. I love the way they, they translate verse 10. Here it goes. We were God's enemies... But he made us his friends through the death of his son. Now that we are God's friends, how much more will we be saved by Christ's life? And then I like verse 11, but that's not all. We rejoice because of what God has done through our Lord Jesus Christ, who has now made us God's friends. I love that language. Jot it down, will you, in your study guide so that you'll have this translation with you? We were God's enemies, but he made us his friends. Through the death of his son, now that we are God's friends, how much more will we be saved by Christ's life? Peckham is absolutely right. God enjoys, he's deeply affected by this reciprocal, one on one relationship, friendship with you. I mean, come on, wasn't that Jesus' point in the upper room less than 24 hours before he's executed? What does Jesus say? Put it on the screen for you. Fill it in in your study guide. John 15, upper room, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this. To lay down one's life for one's, what's the next word? Friends. Keep writing. You are my, what's the next word? Friends. If you do what I command. And oh, by the way, everybody in the upper room has already pledged to do whatever their master commands. You can count on me. Peter says, yes, sir, I'm with you till death. And what does Peter do in a few hours? Cursing the name of his friend. He denies him. By the way, the, the gospel says all the, all the disciples fled. All of them fled. And just hours after the resurrection, what does Thomas do? He said, I don't believe it. I don't, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Doubts him. You are my friends. Hey, yo, Lord, did you say that to those guys? You got to be kidding me. You're not saying that about us, are you? We're the same. I mean, please. Friends? You're calling us friends? With God, you have this exclusive one-on-one, -on -one, reciprocal, reciprocal. Romans 5.10, let me read it again one more time. We were, we were God's enemies, but he made us his friends through the death of his son. Now we are God's friends. 
Now that we are, how much more will we be saved by Christ's life? Clark Rowland was absolutely right. God is a being questing for friends. He used to say that to me. God is a being questing for friends. So over the holiday break, I took my little love, uh, went down to Argentina for a week and then L.A. for a week. I took along my little uh, Steps to Christ. I said, you know, I'm going to read a chapter at a time. I'm looking for all the words love or derivative of love and just putting a little mark in the margin. You know, it occurs to me, uh, guys, that if you wanted to, you could do a lot worse at the beginning of the new year than reading a chapter whenever you have the time, just a chapter at a time, for this little classic. And on page, page 100, how that's, how's that an easy uh, reference to remember? Page 100, let me read this for you. It's in your study guide and put it on the screen as well. Isn't this something? The relations between God and each soul are as distinct and full as though there were not another soul upon the earth to share his watch care, not another soul for whom he gave his beloved Son. The truth about Jesus' love for you, the truth about the Father's love for you is, I don't know how God does this, but he's able to zone out, zone out everybody else in the universe, and it's as if you're the only human being. You're the only one. You and I, that's it, reciprocal. You ever call these 800 numbers and need help, huh? 800 numbers, toll-free, you call the number, operator gets on, and you can hear a hundred other voices. Everybody yak, 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 yak. You get some uh, young man in India or some woman in the United States, and you're trying to explain, and, you know, this is what I need. God says, I'm not that way. I'm not an 800 number where I got a bunch of operators taking these calls. I take every call myself, and I can take them simultaneously, and it feels to you as if there are nobody else in the world. I'm only talking to you. Wow. Wow. As if there were no other soul on earth. That's the truth. No wonder you can call him your friend. F-R-I-E-N-D. Friend. In fact, jot these down. Jot them down as fast as I can read them. These are just from Steps to Christ. Boom, 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 boom. Talking about friendship with God. Here we go. I'm not even going to read the page number. Steps to Christ. Here's the line. Jesus is our friend, capital F, friend, and Savior still. Here's another one. What a precious friend we have found in Jesus. Here's another one. Prayer is the opening of the heart to God as to a what? As to a friend. Here's another one. He, God the Father, is our best friend, right in the word best. And one more from Steps to Christ, Jesus. Jesus is our friend. Same author, by the way, in a letter she wrote on May 24, 1905, Ellen White, personal letter to a woman, my dearest child, Mabel, you need to fill this in, oh, that we all realize that true happiness is found in taking Christ as our nearest and dearest friend. Oh, I love that. Nearest and dearest friend. He loves you and will be your sympathizing, write it in, your sympathizing friend. And then here comes Adventist home. This, this, this is great. Are there any mothers here today? Any mothers? Look at this. Jesus knows the burdens of every mother's heart and is her best friend. Let's, let, let's, let's expand the circle. Are there any women here today? Any women here? Because the next line, same page, is for you. Here it goes. 
He, Jesus, is woman's best friend today and is ready to aid her in all the relations of life. And even in the sophisticated West where we proud ourselves, oh, man, we're all gender, gender equal around here. Even, even here, when women are maligned and shoved to the side, we just don't talk about it. There's somebody who will always be your friend. One more. I've got to share this with you. Same author in a letter to an aged. Anybody aged here? I guess they were all in first service. <laughs> let, let me share this with you. So a letter to an aged Christian. Same author. Just rest in Jesus' arms. And this is the best. Just rest in Jesus' arms and know that He is your Savior and your, write it down, very best friend. He is your BFF forever and ever. Your very best friend in the whole wide world, in the entire universe. He is your very best friend. I'm telling you what, guys, it doesn't get any better than this. Talking about charmed into righteousness. Who wouldn't want to be friends with the God that thinks this of me? I mean, can you imagine that? Before I photoshopped myself up, he wanted to be friends. What's up with that? I don't know this L.A. Times father who lost his daughter. I don't know Father Watson either. But I tell you what, having heard their stories, and I read this testimony, my heart aches with him. My heart aches for that dad. And I imagine in my simple way of thinking that if there were anybody on this planet now that I could turn to in my own, in my own herd and my own dysfunction, I could turn to this father, and he'd have a heart, and he'd somehow know there is a father in this universe who also lost an only child, a son. He's the father that says, hey, I want to be your BFF. I, I want to be your best friend forever. C could we walk together this new year? And I don't know about you, but I tell you what, if you give me his phone number, I promise you, I'll be glad to call him every single day of this new year. You give me his phone number, I'll call him. Now, look, I understand he's busy. He's got a whole universe to run. But you can't tell me that somebody has who has made that infinite a sacrifice and investment in my life wouldn't love for the moments when he and I were alone and we just talked reciprocally, you understand, one-on-one -on -one and heart-to-heart. -heart. Give me his phone number. You don't want to call him. You give me his phone number. I'll call him every day. And by the way, I understand that I can't stay on the phone forever. You, you know, I have a life to live. So you know what? I'll get up earlier. I'll get up when it's quiet and there's nobody in my roommate is still asleep and the family's still in bed. I'll get up early so that I can be alone, be alone with my BFF. And just the two of us, we'll talk. He'll talk to me through the book and I'll talk back. And reciprocally, we'll grow closer and closer until I'm charmed into his righteousness. That's what I would do. Give me his number. Come on. You don't want to call him? Give me his number. I'll call him every day. And by the way, you give me your email address. 
Give me your email address right now, and I will send to you a way to meet with God every day that you choose. I'm not saying you have to do it every day. You want to do it one in seven? That's your choice. Kind of a weird friendship, one in seven, but hey. I'll send you a method. You give me your email address. I will send you a method so that you can be with God every single day that you want to be alone with Him, with your best friend forever and ever. In fact, take your Connect card right now and scribble that email address down. If you'll scribble your email address down on the front of this card, I'm not going to go through the whole card right now. I want to end with the story. Then we'll go to the card. But you, you put your email address on the front of this card, put your email address. And then go to box number two. Turn it over. My next step today, I'll talk about the others later. I would like to grow my friendship with Jesus through prayer this new year. Please send me a new way to pray. You just check box number two. I'll send you something in the mail. Nobody's coming to knock on your door. I'll send you something. Email. Ushers are moving to the doors now. They're going to pick this card up in just a second. So please, do it right now. Just scribble your email address and then check box number two. Now let me tell you that story. I promise a story. I want to end with a story. Brazilian, little Brazilian couple. We've got a lot of Brazilians here in this congregation. A little Brazilian couple named Italvino and Diva Posa. Did I say that right in Portuguese? Portuguese? Yeah, little Brazilian couple fell in love, got married in 1949. Ta-da! Take a look at their wedding photo. There they are, handsome couple. Got married in 1949. Yeah, began to, began to raise a family. Eventually, ten children. Whoa, mama mia. Ten children. Husband worked hard. You can take the picture down now. Husband worked hard. So did mother. And somewhere along the way, Mother Diva met a friend who introduced her to Jesus and the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And Mother Diva is baptized, as we saw just a moment ago, baptized into Christ. She asks Italvino, and he says, no. He's a businessman, so every time he goes on a business, she sticks into his suitcase literature, a little book, something to read. And so he gets there to his destination, pulls the book out, and guess what? Eventually, he too was baptized. And the two of them became active in their witnessing and serving Jesus in their home church in Porto Alegre in southern Brazil. I want to see, when you see the picture of the couple now, handsome, uh-huh. Handsome, beautiful. Ten children, by the way. Fourteen grandchildren, six great-grandchildren. But then it happened. Il Tavino contracted leukemia. And then Diva developed bladder cancer. And so it was that the two of them ended up in the same hospital room this past autumn. And the Adventist Reviews, the one that where I found this story. Just this last fall, they ended up in the same hospital room, and they would push their beds together. And so, on October 3, 40 minutes apart, these two lifelong friends died. Sixty-five years of marriage slowly coming to an end. They died. Get this. They died holding hands best friends forever. There's a God in this universe who says, if you let me take your hand, I'll walk with you. I'll stay with you, girl. I'll stay with you, boy. I'll stay with you till life is over. Just give me your hand, and I'll be your BFF forever and ever. Amen.
Let's pray. Oh, God, is it really, is the, is the good news really this good? Are you gooder than we thought? Is your love more infinite than we have realized? Please, know our hearts. We want to be best friends forever and ever. Who better than you? Does it get any better than this? It does not. So hear our hearts. Know our minds. Take our hands. We will walk with you this year. Through Jesus, our Savior and friend, we pray. Amen.